0: Welcome to Opinion Has It. I'm Elmira Behrasli. Before we start today's episode, I wanted to share some news. This is my last turn at the mic for Opinion Has It. After nearly three years, the podcast will be reaching its end. We've really enjoyed creating these episodes for you. I hope that you've learned as much as I have. And if you've missed any of our past episodes, I hope you'll give them a listen. Now for today's episode. In the Sino-American great power drama, Taiwan has taken center stage. The U.S. and China appear to be entering dangerous territory over Taiwan. It's a around the Taiwan Strait.
1: Talking about the giant issue of Taiwan. The main story tonight concerns Taiwan.
0: Taiwan may have its own constitution, democratically elected leaders, and even armed forces, but most of the world doesn't recognize it as a sovereign country. That's because of pressure from China. According to Chinese leaders, Taiwan is an illegitimate breakaway province destined to be reunified with the mainland. And lately, China has seemed intent on hurrying destiny along.
1: Taiwan's leader Su Junchang says that the island needs to be on alert in response to what he called China's over-the-top military activities and violations of regional peace. He was speaking after a four-day period in which nearly 150
0: Chinese warplanes flew into Taiwan's air defense zone.
1: Never before have so many Chinese planes come so close to Taiwan.
0: All this has put the U.S. in a very uncomfortable position. On the one hand, Joe Biden's administration is under pressure to commit to defending the island. I just want to make China understand that we are not going to step back. We are not going to change any of our views. So are In you China. saying
1: that, that the United States would come to Taiwan's defense if yes, China we, attacked? Yes, we have a commitment.
0: On the other hand, the U.S. has a long-standing policy of strategic ambiguity towards Taiwan. The White House has walked back on Joe Biden's latest remark on Taiwan. Well, there has been no shift. The president was not
1: announcing any change in our policy, nor has he made a decision to change our policy. Uh, there is no change in our policy.
0: So how much danger is Taiwan in? How far will the US go to protect it? Can the problem of Taiwan's legal status ever really be solved? Hi, Bonnie. Hi, how are you? I'm good. How's it going? Here to help us answer these questions is Bonnie Glazer. Bonnie is a director of the Asia Program at the German Marshall Fund and host of the China Global Podcast. She joins us from Washington, D.C. Bonnie, I want to start with China's claim to Taiwan. What's the historical basis for it, and does it have any legitimacy?
1: Well, Taiwan was part of China under the Qing Dynasty. So this goes back to uh, the 1900s, and Japan ruled Taiwan from 1895 until the end of World War II. And in 1945, uh, Japan essentially surrendered Taiwan. And there are these disputes about whether Taiwan's sovereignty was actually returned to China. Taiwan was actually handed over to Chiang Kai-shek, who at the time was the KMT general, Um, he was still fighting a war with the communists. But China claims that based on the 1943 Cairo Declaration and the 1945 Potsdam Declaration, that China has indisputable sovereignty over Taiwan.
0: China says Taiwan basically agreed to this narrative with the 1992 consensus. But Taiwan interprets that agreement really much differently. Where is the disconnect? And why did Taiwan agree to the consensus in the first place?
1: Well, in 1992, there were representatives from Taiwan and from China who met to talk about the relationship. And at the time, the party in Taiwan that was in power was the Nationalist Party or the KMT. And they negotiated this agreement because both sides agreed that Taiwan and China are part of the same country, or Taiwan and mainland China, to be more correct, are part of the same country. And the Taiwan side believed at the time, and and the KMT still holds this position, uh, that the country that both sides are part of is called the Republic of China. And the Chinese side, of course, believes that the country that both sides are part of should be called the People's Republic of China. But they essentially agreed, well, we'll agree to disagree. We won't emphasize what we're going to call this one country. We'll just agree that both sides belong to the same country. And we'll set aside our differences. And on that basis, we will try to develop better relations. And the KMT was in power then in Taiwan, of course, from 1992 until uh, 2000, when Taiwan had its first president from the Democratic Progressive Party. And the DPP has never really accepted that consensus, and relations were tense and contentious between Taiwan and mainland China during the eight years that Chen Shui-bian was president. And then we went back to having a KMT leader for, for eight years, and they went back to the ni- agreeing on the 1992 consensus. And then, of course, 2016, Uh, We had another leader come to power, again from the DPP, the pro-independence party in Taiwan, and she didn't want to embrace this 1992 consensus. In this new era, Beijing has many more uh, tools that it can use to coerce Taiwan to return to that 1992 consensus. So we've seen the tensions um, really ratchet up between the two sides of the strait as China has used diplomatic and and, uh, military and sometimes even economic tools uh, to pressure Taiwan. But at the moment, that 1992 consensus is in abeyance if another KMT president were elected in Taiwan, it is likely that there would be a return to that understanding of the 1992 consensus.
0: While Taiwan's position has shifted over the years, China has remained steadfast in its commitment to reunification. But it's also allowed the status quo to persist for decades. Now, this seems to be changing. The new
1: Chinese leaders revealed, led by President-in-waiting Xi Jinping.
0: Since President Xi Jinping came to power in 2012, China has taken a tougher approach to sovereignty issues. The most extreme example is Hong Kong. To Hong Kong
1: now, where protesters are once again gathering to voice their fury at a highly controversial bill that would allow extraditions to mainland China.
0: They shot tear gas and pepper spray, swung batons, and fired rubber bullets. There are growing
1: fears the Chinese government may use the military to crack down on protesters in Hong Kong. The ruling Chinese party imposing a new national security law on that city. It's meant to crack down on any opposition to the government.
0: We knew this was coming, but details of the legislation were only published after it came into effect. With record numbers of Chinese military planes entering Taiwan's air defense identification zone, it increasingly looks like the island could be next.
1: Xi Jinping's immediate goal is to prevent Taiwan independence. Uh, Of course, Taiwan is, we could agree, I think, perhaps de facto uh, independent country, but it does not in legal terms have an independent status. There are today 14 countries plus the Vatican that recognize Taiwan and the rest of the countries in the world recognize the People's Republic of China. So the immediate goal is to prevent Taiwan from becoming independent and having other countries around the world, especially the United States, support Taiwan as an independent country. But the longer term goal is definitely reunification. And Xi Jinping has said in many statements that uh, reunification is a necessary requirement for China's national rejuvenation And Xi Jinping has set a deadline uh, that rejuvenation should take place uh, by 2049, the middle of of this century. And China has in the past used many positive inducements to try to persuade Taiwan to integrate more uh, with the mainland, first economically and then hopefully politically. But that has basically failed. So Xi Jinping is increasingly relying on more of these coercive means. Um, He wants to compel Taiwan to engage in political talks uh, on reunification. But there's really a debate, I think, among experts as to whether or not Xi Jinping is willing to pay a very high cost for seeking reunification and whether or not he would use force to achieve it because after all, he'd risk war with the United States if he did so, as well as the possibility even of failure.
0: So Bonnie, I want to pick up on the idea that she would risk war with the United States by attacking Taiwan. We've seen a lot of calls for the United States to make clear that it would defend Taiwan. But the situation is clearly complicated. The U.S. had to Keep its commitments to the island ambiguous in order to formalize relations with Taiwan in 1979. So, before we dive into America's current dilemma, I want to give our listeners a little historical perspective. How have past U.S. administrations walked this tightrope on Taiwan?
1: Well, let's let's clarify U.S. policy. The United States had a mutual defense treaty with Taiwan from 1954 to 1979 and broke diplomatic ties with the Republic of China, Taiwan uh, in 1979 and established diplomatic relations with the People's Republic of China. And at that time created something that we call the Taiwan Relations Act. And that's been the basis for uh, of US policy toward Taiwan ever since 1979. And uh, some people do misstate that the United States actually has a commitment to defend Taiwan, but uh, the TRA uh, is is online; anybody can read it. It just obligates the United States to sell defensive weapons to Taiwan, and I, I think also importantly to maintain the co- the capability itself—that is, the United States—to prevent uh, coercion uh, against Taiwan. And I think you know, presidents have often gone beyond the contents of the Taiwan Relations Act. Uh, In 2001, President George W. Bush pledged to Do whatever it took, he said, (laughs) whatever it took or whatever it takes uh, to defend Taiwan. And President Biden has said on several occasions that he would defend Taiwan. But the policy is one of strategic ambiguity. Uh, U.S. presidents just don't say in advance whether they would defend Taiwan. And that is believed to be part of what has actually helped preserve the peace Uh, ever since 1979, when the U.S. did break diplomatic ties with Taiwan. So every president is always concerned about strengthening deterrence. If they're smart, they're also concerned about providing some reassurance.
0: As Bonnie notes, more recent U.S. administrations have been bolder in their support for the island. The shift began with Donald Trump's administration.
1: The U.S. is pushing to up its arms sales to Taiwan as part of an effort known within the Pentagon as Fortress Taiwan. The United States is planning to sell as many as seven major weapon systems to Taiwan, including mines, cruise missiles and drones, according to Reuters sources.
0: Observers claim that the potential arms deal
1: is important to U.S. President Donald Trump and his foreign policy legacy.
0: Biden has largely followed the same course and gone even further.
1: For the first time in four decades, a Taiwan representative attended the presidential inauguration. The island calls it another milestone in deepening ties.
0: Last month, Tsai Ing-wen, the leader of Taiwan, confirmed that U.S. troops were on the island training Taiwanese military personnel. China was not happy.
1: China has told the United States to stop any military contact with Taiwan. The warning comes after President Tsai Ing-wen confirmed for the first time That some American troops are stationed on the island. Beijing says that that amounts to foreign interference.
0: Bonnie, do you believe that if China attacked Taiwan today, the U.S. would take military action to defend it? And I guess more importantly, do you think China believes that?
1: Well, I'll start with the second question. I have no doubt that China believes that the United States would defend Taiwan and that the PLA has been planning for decades based on the likelihood that the United States would come to Taiwan's defense. In fact, the PLA developed capabilities to deter the United States, what we call anti-access area denial capabilities that would make it very costly for US military assets to be operating anywhere near Taiwan and mainland China. And they tried to achieve that goal even before they developed more advanced amphibious landing capabilities to land on Taiwan, which would be necessary if they want to actually control it. So they have been assuming that, yes, there would be a U.S. effort to defend Taiwan, and they have tried to deter that effort, or at least to make it very costly. You know, one example would be the DF-26 and DF-21 carrier killer missiles that the Chinese have actually tested in the South China Sea against moving targets. Uh, So, of course, the goal is to send a message to the United States, is if you sail your carriers anywhere near us, we are going to be able to destroy them. So that's a Capability that was definitely aimed at deterring and preventing U.S. intervention. It's my view that the United States would, under most circumstances, come to Taiwan's defense. And there's many reasons for that. One is that Taiwan is a vibrant democracy, it's one of the few places in the world that has transitioned from an authoritarian. Uh, government to a fully democratic government. Taiwan, of course, is very strategically located. It is not very far from uh, the southernmost island of Yonaguni of Japan, and uh, Japan sees Taiwan as a potential existential issue for Japan's security, so that if Taiwan were taken over by uh, China, that would just be seen as as an existential threat by Japan, and we, of course, have commitments to Japan under our security and defense treaty uh, with Japan. So, if we stood by and didn't do anything, uh, Japan and probably other countries would conclude that we're not very much of a reliable partner. How can we say that we have extended deterrence, for example, which is both conventional and nuclear, if we have not? Actually, come to the defense of Taiwan when it was under threat, should that scenario occur. So, I think that's another main reason why the United States is likely to come to defense if the Chinese threaten to attack.
0: So, Japanese officials have made it clear that they would actively support the U.S. in this effort. But other regional actors could also come into play. And we've recently seen Japan, the United States, and other Asia-Pacific democracies like Australia ramp up security cooperation to contain China. How might these trends affect China's calculations when it comes to Taiwan?
1: Well, I think that the hope is by building coalitions that push back against China's assertive behavior— and signal Beijing that countries around the world have an interest in the preservation of peace and security in the Taiwan Strait, that that will make it more likely that Xi Jinping will take those factors into account and will therefore pause before considering the use of force against Taiwan and will instead rely on other tools to advance goals of reunification and hopefully open dialogue with the government in Taiwan. So I think that's the plan. If this is just a U.S.-China issue, then it will be more difficult to keep the peace than if that issue is internationalized.
0: So you've said that there are also domestic factors that could dissuade Xi from attempting a military takeover of Taiwan. Can you tell our listeners what they are and why they matter? Well,
1: the first domestic factor is keeping the Chinese Communist Party in power. Some people would argue that there is pressure on Xi Jinping to reintegrate Taiwan with the motherland. But I'm not totally convinced of that. I'm not sure that the people in China really want to send their sons, their only children, to potentially die in a war Uh, over Taiwan. I think that the leadership in China might be concerned about the possibility of an anti-China coalition or even alliance of sorts forging against China if it were to use force against Taiwan. So I think the leadership has to worry about that. There's also the potential downturn of the economy. A war, I think, would divert Xi Jinping from his other agenda items. And and Xi Jinping is prioritized, for example, dominating technologies like AI and uh, semiconductors and autonomous, autonomous vehicles, quantum computing. The peacetime competition is really important for China. They need to have a stable domestic and international environment. And in fact, Xi Jinping just stated this explicitly in a speech that he gave on the 110th anniversary of the 1911 revolution. This is when the nationalist government was established. And uh, so he very explicitly said China really does need a stable domestic and and international environment. So I, I just think that the risks for Xi Jinping are really quite high. And I don't think that if he fails to reunify Taiwan with the mainland during his time in office, and he could be leader for life, we don't know that, but he may just be there for a third term or maybe even a fourth term, that would be 10 years. I just don't see any evidence that he has decided that reunification is the necessary piece for his legacy.
0: As Bonnie notes, China has plenty of reasons to stop short of attempting a military takeover of Taiwan today. But peaceful unification with a willing Taiwan is even less likely to happen. Despite spending several decades living in China's shadow, Taiwan has done very well for itself. For
1: people in Taiwan, this is their proudest moment. Taiwan this Saturday will have its first genuinely democratic elections in that country's history
0: it managed a peaceful transition from autocratic rule to a robust multi-party democracy. This is
1: the new rough-and-tumble world of politics in Taiwan. In their parliament, clashes of ideas sometimes become clashes with fists.
0: Taiwan has also built a thriving economy. Taiwan is on track to end 2020 on a high. Taiwan's economy saw its strongest expansion in nearly 10 years last quarter as global demand for its tech products surged. China has claimed that if Taiwan agrees to peaceful reunification, it could keep its democracy under the one country, two systems principle. But with that principle effectively dead and buried in Hong Kong, Taiwanese aren't buying it. President Tsai Ing-wen officially began her second term on Wednesday after winning re-election by a landslide in January's elections. In her inauguration speech, Tsai said Taiwan and China had reached a historical turning point in their relationship. Tsai said Taiwan could not accept being part of China under the one country, two systems framework proposed by Beijing. She said that both sides had a duty to find a way to coexist. Support for outright unification with the People's Republic of China has always been below 10%, but today it's in the low single digits. Bonnie, I wanna talk about how all this looks from Taiwan. Tsai's reelection in 2020 was widely considered a rebuke to China. And opinion polls show extremely low support for unification. What relationship do the Taiwanese people want with China?
1: Well, that's a great question. Um, The Taiwanese people for a long time really wanted to have a good relationship with China. They wanted more trade, economic relations. Uh, Students wanted to go there to study. The... Salaries for young people were higher in mainland China and uh, people felt that they had a better future. Lot, lots of people went. There's over 1 million Taiwanese living in mainland China. The investment is huge um, over the course of decades. Uh, there's billions of dollars have been invested and many co- Taiwanese companies that are indispensable to mainland China's economy, like uh, Foxconn and Taiwan Semiconductor Corporation, for example, um, and they have huge factories, you know, in, in in China producing parts for iPhones and and cars and batteries and, and and things of that nature. And the Taiwanese people for a long time really supported that. But um, in in 2014, there was an, an effort to by the prior president who was under the KMT, he was uh, Ma Ying-jeou and was really trying to push greater economic um, interdependence between the two sides and particularly uh, a new um, economic trade agreement. And there was a a backlash in Taiwan. Some of the younger people took control of the legislature. Uh, This came to be known as the sunflower movement in Taiwan. And uh, since then, there's been quite a bit of wariness about excessive economic dependence. And if we include Hong Kong, uh, almost uh, 44% today of Taiwanese exports go to mainland China and Hong Kong and Macau. And that's just excessive, I think, for for any country. So President Tsai has been trying to reverse that. She has been pursuing what's called the new southbound policy to develop more economic relations with uh, Southeast Asia and South Asia. They made some headway before the pandemic, but I think the pandemic has set them back a bit, though this is an important goal that I think she will continue to push for. When she was running for re-election, her poll numbers originally were really quite low. Uh, There was a lot of dissatisfaction, not only in the opposition party among people who supported them, but also within her own party of some of her policies. And then came Hong Kong and President Tsai Ing-wen, as she was uh, running for uh, reelection, really pointed to what was going on in Hong Kong and said, wow, this is uh, really a threat to Taiwan. We could be next. And it was really successful. So, you know, the question going forward is after she finishes her second term, which by law, uh, Taiwan's president can only serve two four-year terms each, And uh, so we don't know, is Taiwan going to get another DPP president? Is it going to get a president from the KMT? The KMT has struggled to win support from young people and they struggled to put out a vision that is appealing because again, since the attitudes now toward mainland China have changed, What is the KMT going to run on? Uh, In the past, they have actually supported reunification with China, and very few people in Taiwan want that. So they need to redefine themselves and put out a vision for Taiwan that is more than what they have put forward in the past, but I don't rule out that there could be another KMT president in Taiwan, either in 2024 or in 2028. The people of Taiwan today are not completely happy with their current president Tsai Ing-wen. It is very much like the United States, a democracy, and there are so many issues that are controversial that have led to diminished support for her.
0: Whoever is in power in Taiwan. Xi Jinping's perspective will stay the same. For him, reunification is only a matter of time.
1: Now, alarm bells are ringing in Taiwan. Chinese President Xi Jinping says the island's reunification with China will happen at some point. He said peaceful reunification was the ultimate goal, but warned Beijing wasn't afraid to use force if necessary. He added that Taiwan's
0: independence would lead to disaster. And military force isn't the only lever she can use to encourage this outcome.
1: China is upping the ante on Taiwan.
0: Amid rising cross-street tensions, China's Taiwan Affairs Office spokesperson announced
1: that those who are diehard supporters of Taiwan independence will be punished, according to the law. China has now decided to sanction the top Taiwanese officials after accusing them of being stubbornly pro-Taiwan independence.
0: This is the first time China has explicitly said it would punish those who support Taiwan's independence. Blacklisted companies and people would be barred from the mainland. Some worry that this will make it more difficult for Taiwan to stand up to China. But Bonnie's not convinced.
1: I don't think that there will be much impact of this public naming of Taiwanese. Uh, who are seen as, they've been labeled stubbornly pro-Taiwan independence by Beijing. There's three individuals, Taiwan's current premier, Su Jun Chang, the speaker of their parliament or legislature, um, Yosuke Kun, and then there's the foreign minister, uh, Joseph Wu. And uh, the the Chinese, I think, are just trying to signal that, they, they want to signal their people that they can control Uh, what's going on in Taiwan. And there's really no danger of Taiwan independence. As I said earlier, their top priority is to prevent Taiwan independence. And if Xi Jinping is seen as being soft on this issue, then that could damage him. So I think the the real reason for doing this is a domestic um, and b to try to warn future uh, leaders and uh, senior officials in Taiwan to not be uh, so anti-China and take measures that are damaging to cross trade relations. Frankly, I don't think it will deter people from the DPP. They don't take this kind of labeling of as stubbornly pro-Taiwan independence very seriously. China has said it will enforce punishment for those that are on the list by not letting them enter the mainland not letting them visit uh, Macau or Hong Kong. But this is not the first time that China has imposed sanctions. It's the first time they've imposed these kind of sanctions on Taiwan, but they have imposed sanctions on parliamentarians and officials and even individual scholars in Europe and also in the United States. And we have yet to see how China is going to try to enforce those sanctions. Uh, so people are watching this, um, my guess is that this is more bark than bite.
0: It seems then that the best course of action is to maintain the status quo. And that actually makes me wonder, can Taiwan's status actually be settled in any lasting way? Or is Taiwan, as Richard Haass, um of the Council on Foreign Relations, recently put it, a situation that must be managed rather than a problem that can be solved?
1: I agree with all that. It's probably the best outcome for the time being. We should all try to kick the can down the road. Taiwan's situation is not ideal. There is certainly growing support in Taiwan for independence, but independence for Taiwan is not achievable in the near term, and it would be dangerous if any government in Taipei really did pursue policies that aim to achieve legal de jure independence. So my view is that we should try to work with other countries to uh, advance Taiwan's um, interest where we can That means things like in international organizations like up at the United Nations and agencies affiliated with the UN, we should support meaningful participation for Taiwan, but not membership um, because you have to be a sovereign state, you know, to be a member of the World Health Organization or the International Civil Aviation uh, Organization uh, or Interpol for that matter. So we should try and, and help Taiwan to participate in meaningful ways be an observer where that capacity, that role exists, but no, we shouldn't be pushing for Taiwan to become an independent sovereign state in the eyes of the the international community. And I think this is doable. Uh, It's going to be more difficult going forward. This is going to be harder and harder to navigate uh, with China amassing more diplomatic, economic, and military power. But I think that we can deter China, at the same time reassure it that we're not supporting independence for Taiwan, and we can help Taiwan preserve its prosperity for its people, its democracy. But Taiwan has to understand that it has to do its part to preserve stability. And President Tsai Ing-wen of Taiwan completely understands that. The problem is that we don't know whether there is a future ruler, a potential candidate for president in Taiwan, who will manage this relationship with China as carefully as she has.
0: Bonnie, thank you. Thanks for having me. That was Bonnie Glaser, the director of the Asia Program at the German Marshall Fund and the host of the China Global Podcast. And that's it for this episode and for Opinion Has It. Thank you for listening. To find out what else is going on at Project Syndicate, follow us on Twitter. Just search for At ProSyn, that's P-R-O-S-Y-N. Until we meet again, I'm Elmira Berasli. Opinion has it is produced and edited by Kasia Broussalian. Special thanks to Project Syndicate editors Whitney Arana and Jonathan Stein.